welcome back to the podcast. This is Capital Stories, where we talk to real people about real issues and explore intersections of life and faith to encourage you in your personal walk with Jesus. Today we're talking about a real issue. Yeah, a real, real issue. Real issue. life. Real life and life. faith right here. We're going to talk about the news. <laughs> with that delay, <laughs> we are talking to Becky Zanny, who yeah. has been part of Capital for a long, long time. Yeah. And even longer than that, she has been a journalist for decades now. And we, uh, she currently works as a news program director for KSL News Radio. Correct. Has just recently finished her master's in journalism mm-hmm. and done a really deep dive into trust and media and social media and yeah. we're all struggling with with news yeah. and what's true and what's not and with so many places to get the news right and so you know just all these things around the news especially mm-hmm. how heightened and charged things feel around mm-hmm. the news mm-hmm. now yeah it's so divisive thought, let's talk to someone who is in the news right and just hear her mm-hmm. perspective mm-hmm. on this and i think it's important to note that longer than even she's been a journalist mm-hmm. she's been a disciple of jesus herself yeah. so we wanted to talk to another christian about her perspective on right. the news as a Christian, as, as a, a human, Christian, as a human, as a professional journalist, right? She's, right. We're thinking about it a lot, but she's thinking about it even more than us, right? Right. And maybe this goes without saying, but Becky has her opinions. Mm-hmm. I've got mine. Tara's mm-hmm. got hers. Mm-hmm. You, listener, have yours, mm-hmm. and those all don't align. <laughs> Such a pretty <laughs> and way. That's okay. And that's kind of the beauty of yeah, this. These are real um, issues. Even as frustrating as it can be, right? That's that's the reality of our world and so we want to acknowledge that and the things that she might believe and we might believe may not necessarily align with you know any official Mm -hmm. stance of an organization like whether you're going to nod your head or be yelling at the airpod we hope you listen (laughs) and enjoy the point and think (laughs) yeah um here's becky on capital stories thanks for listening oh wait before you press record we should pray let's pray okay deep breath god and um Yes, that is the point at the end of, in the middle, in the beginning, throughout every single one of these episodes. This is you and and how we live real life with real faith. And with that sort of that ultimate hope that we have to translate into how we do this every day. So I pray, we pray together for just this interview, for this conversation, for addressing a a tricky topic, Um, would you give us curiosity and good conversation and help us to be just aware of what we say, how we say it, but in all of it, the who that's behind it. We thank you for this day and this time. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are excited to welcome Becky Zanny. Hi, Becky. Hi. Becky is an expert, all things knowledgeable on the topic of (laughs) journalism, media, and we're excited about this episode because we get to sort of dig into a little bit of muddy water Yeah. when it comes to just media and lots and of different like kinds of terminology. Money one that people don't want to get into. Yeah, so, right? Yeah. Like, like how do you touch that with dive like into the topic of no. fake news and come out Wholesome better? And yeah. 
but we're going to do it. Becky, you're going to help us do that. I'll do my best. I would push back on the idea that I'm an expert in anything. Okay. I good. think we're all just doing our best. Okay. And we'll get some, well, you've got some life rafts for us, hopefully. Okay. So we are going to start, Becky, you have had a long career in the profession of journalism slash media. Tell us a little bit about where that started, where you are now. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah. So I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, and I actually started on a music scholarship in college, but I'd always enjoyed writing. And about a year into music school, I realized that it was kind of sucking all of the fun out of playing the piano. And that if I wanted to still like playing the piano, I needed to not major in it. So I changed my major. I gave up scholarship money to do it, which was a huge decision. And I thought, okay, what can I do that I enjoy doing that I can do every day for the rest of my life and not hate it? And I eventually landed on journalism. I was, well, okay, that that puts my writing skills. I'm, I've always been good at grammar and spelling, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't really know what I was getting into beyond kind of the surface level. My family always got newspapers. We, we were a news-consuming family, sure. Day one, I'm in Journalism 101, and this group of fellow kids walks in from the college radio station and they're trying to start a news department. And one of them says, anybody want to volunteer? You can start anchoring newscasts. We can have you do some reporting, whatever. So this is not official classwork. This is a kind of an extracurricular deal, but I'm okay, I'll sign up for that. Why not? I fell in love with radio and never looked back. Also learned along the way that I'm really passionate about the First Amendment, which is something I didn't know going in. So I spent part of my career in Kentucky. I worked in both Lexington and Louisville, which mm. is the correct pronunciation. Got it. Okay, thank but you. We're gonna, uh, <laughs> now we all see, know. We're already <laughs> learning. There you go. I also lived in Roanoke, Virginia, for about five years, where I worked as a reporter, anchor, and then eventually a news director. Moved to Utah in the end of 2007, beginning of 2008, as a producer. Produced news until 2016 transferred myself over into the digital world and took care of our website and social media spaces. And since last October, I've been the news director of my station. I feel like you also have some awards. I have won some awards. I actually have two Murrows for Best Newscast. The Edward R. Murrow Awards are from the Radio and Television Digital News Association. So kind yeah. of the radio equivalent of an Emmy. Wow. Mm, not an Oscar, not quite not quite that big, but yeah, that's that's the Oscars of radio is. though. I mean, that's Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it it felt really good, I got to tell you. Mm. And you just finished your masters. I did. I hey. decided I don't know if this was a midlife crisis or what, but around age 40 I had the bright idea of I was going to go back to school and get my masters degree. So I went through the online program at the University of Missouri, which is a pretty respected journalism school. Really hard work. Don't let the word online fool you. I I can agree with that. Yeah. I can agree with that from an <laughs> empathetic place in my own life. Yeah. So I just barely finished that up last summer and then defended it in the fall. And we're going to get to that. We're going to get to yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. It, 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 it was a lot. Okay. So round us out here on the Christian side of things. We were just actually yeah. talking before we started about you were baptized January 6th, 1985. Yeah. I, I, I threw that date out there because yeah. it's in the beginning. So they... And my church where I grew up, they handed us a little new international version, New Testament only, 
right? Oh. And it's, it's inscribed in the beginning, signed by my pastor as a kid. Hmm. So I know that date very well every year on January 6th, which is also old Christmas. So if you're into Catholic or other kind of more traditional mm. faiths, you mm. recognize that date as the date that people recognize that the Magi were supposed to have visited Jesus. Hmm. Of course, we don't really know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why we picked it. Interesting it little tidbit. To, yeah. It <laughs> happened to fall on a Sunday in 1985. So that's why we picked it. <laughs> yeah. I was I was seven years old, which sounds, mm. how in the world did I make such a big decision at seven years old? But I, I had been raised in church. My family was very good about taking me to church as a kid, but I always believed that Jesus lived in my heart. I never doubted that for a second. I've gone through some periods in my adult life where I've had to kind of wrestle with that and grapple with it and recommit and redecide that, yeah, he does live there. But I never wavered as a kid. And it was always a comfort to me growing up. Becky is someone who, out of the, she's one of these people that out of the blue, quote unquote, because we don't really believe in that, right? Providence, not coincidence, will send the text that says, God's got this. Right at the right time. <laughs> and I always appreciate that about you. Okay, so you mentioned journalism school. And tell us what the originally back in those days school was versus kind of this master's program you just did now. How how did that change? How did that feel different? Oh gosh, where to begin? Right, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, just you've had all this life experience, right, when you went back to school again. But the world of media, which we're right. kind of getting to here, is a very different. I remember right being in college and and taking journalism classes and who, what, when, where, why was my biggest challenge. Right. Not so much anymore. Yeah. I mean, those things are still important. Yeah. Right. And good writing is good writing. Yeah. But the technology is vastly different. I distinctly remember circa 1997 having a discussion with a print professor about how the delineation between print majors and broadcast majors was a little bit behind the times and they needed to get with the program because people had websites. Oh my goodness. In 1997, <laughs> we needed to be thinking about websites and broadcast majors needed to write print style and print style people needed to be prepared for blogs and all kinds of other stuff that wasn't exactly AP style that they might be normally thinking about. And we couldn't just black and white. These are print. These are broadcast. And now it's there's so many more other things out there. There's podcasting and there's radio and there's TV, but then there's specialty programs and YouTube and social media. And it's it's a completely different landscape. We were talking about the concept of convergence back in the late 90s in media outlets where maybe the local newspaper and a TV station and maybe a radio station too might start to work together and collaborate. And it was this big, nobody had ever done this kind of idea. And there are so many other things now right? We were so simple in thinking that it was just TV and radio and, and print. Great, for instance, locally here in Utah, most of the media outlets in the area have joined in, in this effort called the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. And I mean, people that I would normally consider my competitors and I and my employees are working together to tell stories about the Great Salt Lake and why it's important and why we should care that it's shrinking and is there anything oh, we can do about it? Specifically to report on what's happening. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, it's completely changed how I think about the media business because, you know, normally it's, well, I can't, I can't let anybody know what I'm doing ahead of time because right. they might cotton right. on to it. Who's and then, the first on scene? Right. We're all going to do the same story and I won't be first anymore. And that's, that idea is so 15 years ago. I wonder if that will translate into other topics. 
I mean, yeah, just maybe. to be able to work with each other on something, the Great Salt, a story, which sure. is so significant and impacts us all, right? With the, you can't deny yeah. there's, we've got some problems with the Great Salt Lake, but how interesting to think about maybe that could translate into other Sure. I know I mean, we're going to get probably political without meaning to here in a little bit That's when we talk hope. about my research. That's the hope. <laughs> but something that ju- journalist organizations in the area have been working together on for years on a smaller scale is what we would see as kind of attacks on freedom of the press. So mm. this winter- So you can work together on that, of course. Yeah. So this winter, for example, the Utah law legislature was looking at changing their rules on access to Senate committee hearings. Sounds boring, I know. Bear with me. At issue was whether people in the media could go behind the diet to record audio. So normally what happens if you're in radio, you don't need to see the room. We're not taking pictures. Of course, we have a website, so we do need some pictures, but we don't necessarily need to be back there behind the meeting. But we might go behind the dais to talk one-on-one with somebody. Because if you're a journalist worth your salt, that the best sound that you're going to get is not in an official meeting it's always going to be in a one-on-one conversation, right? And so being able to go up to lawmaker A or lawmaker B and say, hey, do you have five minutes? I just want to ask you a couple quick questions about what you were saying before. And you get one-on-one and you get to ask more probing questions and it's not them just reading. And it humanizes them. It humanizes you. It makes a better story. But they're going to, they threatened to They weren't going to allow access beyond the dais anymore. Several of us in media locally spoke at a committee hearing. Scariest thing I think I've ever done in my career, by the way. Mm. And I mean, I just pictured that table with 700 microphones on it and the big... Yeah, no, not intimidating at all. (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, we lost, right? They did change the rule. But I was thinking afterward with the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, how much better would our approach have been if we collaborated a little bit more Mm. beforehand instead of just a few haphazard Mm -hmm. little emails that are, hey, you guys don't know this is happening, Mm -hmm. right? But actual coordination. Mm -hmm. And we live in a world where it feels more and more and more collaborative, collective work is is not the norm. Yeah. Right? Unfortunately. So, and that's probably a little bit about what we're going to talk about today too. <laughs> yeah, I want to follow up on the oh, the, yeah. the environment changing though a little bit from, right. from then yeah. to now. Yeah. When you were in school before to now, like I understand totally and I hear you say it's just gotten more complex and there's so many more channels, there's mm-hmm. so many more avenues to get news out get there. news and consume news and that's understandable. But I'm also seeing and just expect that there might be this trend over time of at some point along the way, there's this distrust in the news. And it's maybe it's a, a result of all these new channels. It's well, there's so much out there. What do I what am I supposed to consume? How am I supposed what am I supposed to believe? What has it been to live back in the day when you started school? I don't maybe this environment still existed and I wasn't aware, but it seems it's more so now. Yeah, it's definitely ramped up right now. Distrust in media is not new. If if there's if you go back into Pew research polls, you can find plenty of evidence that People have had waxing and waning levels of trust in journalists over decades. A time when trust was particularly high was at the end of the Watergate scandal, right? And tr- right now, it's probably at one of the lowest points it's been, but it's not that it was never low. It's more like a continuum. And I think that makes sense. I mean, you what a lot of people don't realize about things TV and radio is you as the public still own the airwaves. I have a license to operate on that airwave, but I'm doing so at your pleasure. So as a result of that, there are certain rules I have to follow. That's why the FCC exists. 
And so long as I toe the line and I'm demonstrating on a regular basis in the files that I have to keep at the station, the public files, that I am operating in the best interest of the public and I'm justifying that what I am doing really is in your best interest, then I get to keep doing what I'm doing, right? But in theory, the FCC could be like, hey, you're not doing so great. You either need to pay us a whole lot of money or we're going to give this particular frequency to somebody else. Never heard of them doing that, but they could. So with that kind of framework in mind, I also kind of get why the public is, you've got a microphone. And if you're not representing my personal point of view, then how do I know that you're representing the public? So I'm not necessarily saying I understand the distrust because there's, there's layers to that and I'm sure we'll get into it. But I also totally understand an individual saying, well, where's my point of view? Do you find, and maybe Eric, this is a little bit of a follow-up from your question, more or less people are looking to get in to media or because it just... There was an uptick after the election of President Trump. Of people wanting to come in to be... Yeah, it had been sort of on the decline for a little while before that, but that created a surge of of new journalism majors and people interested in. It's sort of tabled off now here in 2022, so we're six years later, for a number of reasons. I think we've got kind of a a labor shortage nationwide. There are a lot of people who are burned out in their careers across the spectrum. I've yet to talk to anyone in any industry who's not dealing with it. So it's not unique to journalism, but we're losing veteran journalists Mm -hmm. as a part of that. We're feeling burned Mm -hmm. out and chewed up and spit out over Mm -hmm. the constant news cycle. I get that. But we're also attracting people who are burned up and chewed up and spit out from other careers that are, well, maybe I should give this broadcasting thing a try. So it's kind of flattened out. But I do think there's still plenty of people who are interested in seeking truth and telling good stories. Does that help? Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, I just know that I'm sure this environment's changed in more ways than just the tangible. We can have websites now. Yeah. And I'm just thank you for explaining how it's this distrust element that I feel is new. It's not so new. It's certainly more ramped up right now, and I think it's more public. So it's not that people didn't have distrust in the media, and I said that with quotation marks. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you a for instance. My brother thought I was fake news for years. Mm. Still have Thanksgiving dinner together, right? He's family. Yeah. I called him up on his birthday and because my brother is my brother, he made it political. And I was like, dude, I just wanted to tell you happy birthday, but I can't ever take my journalist hat off mm. around him. And I kind of get that. So we now have this blanket, no politics at the dinner table rule when we have family gatherings because we just, we can't. And maybe that's a, that's a sign of the times how yeah. things have changed. Yeah. Where we, before we may have been able to put it aside a little bit more, but it doesn't seem it's ever put aside. Yeah. You know, it's and he'll say something that's just, this is also where my journalism hat doesn't come off on my end of things. It's not just him, right? So to his credit, this is not all him. He'll say something that is just factually incorrect. And me being me, I can't let it go. I have to fact check him. It's an urge that I just can't fight. If I could just be like, uh-huh, that's nice and walk away, I'm sure we would be in much better shape, but I can't do it. I really can't. And just that term facts... <laughs> I, that was debatable. I just well, and I think that that's that's part of where this is. Yeah, this is we're messy. getting here sooner like, than I this thought. Is but the, this is the part of where it's it's just messy. Yeah, because for, what is a fact is you just said it, debatable. Whereas it did 
feel, I thought, and maybe I appreciate your point about the news has always been distrusted, but maybe in my Pollyanna mind, I was but 20 years bad. ago, it wasn't that, right? <laughs> Tom Brokaw, well, all of those people. Were, I have a distinct but, memory in college of, of somebody arguing with me about whether I was trying to make Bill Clinton look bad. And I was still a ju- student journalist at the time. So we're going back almost exactly 20 years, 30 years. Yeah. So uh, he was facing some scandals, right? In fact, that seems to be a fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but early on, a lot of that was still up in the air. And, mm. and there was a lot of, why are you guys picking mm. on him? Right. Why are you going mm. after him so hard? And, you know, well, there's a few sentences of factual information that seem that would be worth exploring. Worth yeah. You know, we've got the perspective of hindsight now. Yeah. I think 30 years from now, we'll have yeah. a perspective of hindsight. on sure. That's a good I mean, point. That's, that's a good point. But it does seem that the the concept of what is a fact, yeah. that people did look to the news to share. Right. These are the facts of what happened in our local community or what happened in our country or our world. And, and, and those facts think fueled also by the pandemic seem to be debatable. Yeah. And you have non-news sources that you can get information from now, mm-hmm. right? So if if you think that I am right non-news full of malarkey, right, then you can seek out a nut job on YouTube and right. <laughs> he'll tell you whatever you want to hear. I mean, there's lots of that out there. I think that's part of and there are I some legitimate people. To get to this. I know we need to get to this. There's so many things to so many different trails to kind of run down. But it it well, let's stick with the media the media part. Do they talk about that in media school? Do, do in in journalism school yeah. in in being trained how to be a journalist? Yeah. Do you have the conversation about you have your own bias or? Reporting yeah. on the facts or the facts. Yeah, I, I mean, train train me on what what are these ethics around journalism yeah. one hundred and one. Here's what you are as a journalist. Here's what you strive for in journalism. Here's what good journalism is. Tell I, 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 various organizations have their own little codes of ethics, but they all boil down to the same principles, which are we're going to tell the truth again, objectively to the to the extent that we possibly can. And we're going to recognize our own bias and do what we can to mitigate that. And notice that I've recognized that I'm not objective. Right. And I need to know that going into a situation. And if there's a situation where I can't mitigate my bias, I have to be willing to say somebody else needs to tell this story. For instance, for me would be stuff involving our local schools. So my husband is an educator. I don't do those stories. I do. I, I, I still have the skill set, but I also recognize that I can never separate me from the me who's got a spouse who's directly involved in that, right? So I find somebody else to do that story. I actually think I could probably tell that story and mitigate my own bias, but I feel it's really important to set a good example for the younger journalists under me, so I don't. So has it been frustrating to have n- non-news news the the uh, the the sur- the research not the surgeons but the the development or the the creation there's so many there's channels the- that are pursuing information sharing that don't have these same codes of ethics or that yeah, the same it is part standards. of the reason i talked about that that issue with the utah legislature part of the reason that was a problem is because there was one of these blogger types who had basically crossed the line 
and barged into a senator's office. And I'm not going to do that. That's not the point. This one guy ruined it for all of us. Right? I see. Yeah. And th- so that can be, that's right. part of the frustration of being in, in journalism right now is that there are, there's, there's, there was, there's an under, a bit of a code of ethics here that just everybody isn't going to follow. Right. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't make other people have the same ethical mindset that I might have or that my employees might have or that my competitors might have, but I'm living in the world where that's still at play. Let's go back to bias. There's terms, implicit bias, confirmation bias. Tell us a little bit about that. Obviously, a lot of that can come into play in some of your research, but... Yeah. So, I mean, all of us have some kind of bias. It's a matter of what bias and how right. much and what degree and there's different types of the bias that you can have and i i don't pretend to be a sociologist or a psychologist so i'm not an expert i can tell you that an implicit bias is one that you may not even realize you're expressing it's implied let's see a confirmation bias is when you're making an assumption about somebody because you already think something about when like on a personal level seeking out information that i already Right. Aligns with what I think is already true. Yeah. Like, so in the journalism world, we we try to remind people to be really careful. Let's say I'm doing a story about some really hot button issue. Yes. I might try and seek out a few different people's perspectives, right? right? But I'm already kind of assuming that I know what their perspective is to do that. So kind of asking people to check that before they right. even make the phone call. Are you calling that person because you genuinely want to know what they think? Right. Or because you already think what they think? And they're going to say what you want to sort of hear. And, yeah. and I mean, this is the crux, yeah. right, of a lot of the challenges I think that we find ourselves having relationally, yeah. right, with people or even when you try to want to have a healthy conversation where you think differently. So you go and do your research, but the algorithms that are created on your, on the Google are going to feed you what they think, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah, a yeah. lot about this, right, are going to f- feed me, are going to give me confirmation to my implicit bias. Yeah. Or I'm just going to reach out, research evidence because I want to to believe what I believe. Mm. And as opposed to where do I go find, quote unquote, the truth, right? That piece of the the little holy special grail of this (laughs) is real. (laughs) That it feels it's become more and more and more difficult to find. And over the last five years, in life that has become i mean let's let's talk about vaccines yeah. let's talk about oh. masks let's i mean let's not <laughs> right <laughs> I, mean, I mean also let's not but yeah. It, yeah it 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 has it has created kind of this this confirmation bias and what and implicit by and what obligate i'm right i what can't even my, imagine being in the media right i told you i felt kind of obligated to fact check my brother as an organization What's my organization's obligation when people use our social media platform to spew false information to fact check that? Am I obligated to go in and reply to them so that other people who might see the word that they're spreading will know that, oh, these people have checked that and that's not true? Or am I making it worse for the trust issue, right? There is no right answer, Tara. You're looking at me, there's a right answer and there's not one. So do you approve as a news producer... Do you approve all the content that's going to go across all your channels? I personally don't approve everything, but somebody does. Yes, I approve a good chunk of it. I am not the only editorial voice that makes sure that we're on the same page, but I am one of the managers who makes sure that we are on the same page. 
Okay. We have to get to this paper because this is just, it's just so fascinating. Yeah. You wrote this big paper. I did. Really extra super big. Oh my goodness. I mean, you had to I do had a thesis no for your master's. Idea. Yeah. Okay. Buckle up. Here's what you say. At a certain point, if journalists cannot effectively disseminate important information to news consumers, if journalists can't do their job, they cannot, therefore, effectively serve as a check and a balance on power. Therefore, we got a question. How can we reverse the trend and build trust, which is lacking, for journalism and journalists, and you say specifically among the users of social media, which is kind of a free-for-all. It really is. Just it a free-for-all. It is free the all. Wild West. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really kind of the question I'm still wrestling with however many months later after I finished writing and what, tell us a little bit. Paper. What happened here? What did you find? Yeah. What did you discover? So let's look at the We were the ready pandemic. to be depressed. Yeah. And I then know. you're just going to bring us back to some hope. Is this where we need to do a disclaimer? <laughs> <laughs> Sensitive audiences may want to. Yeah. We're talking. Yeah. Huh. So the, the, the reality is if you have a situation like coronavirus and I have the public arguing with me as a journalist about whether it's even spreading. Right. Right. We had people on our Facebook pages saying, it's just a cold. Tell that to somebody who lost somebody. Yeah. I mean, if you are lucky, it's just a cold. And as time is going on, it's becoming more and more that way. But that's really a heartless thing to say to somebody who's lost somebody. Anyway. Okay. So I have somebody who's arguing with me about whether it's actually even dangerous. Are they going to believe me if I discover that the mayor is corrupt? Mm. Are they going to believe me if I discover that the legislature is somehow defrauding the public. If I don't have trust on this issue, which should be verifiable fact, do I have trust on this other thing where they do kind of have to take my word for it? I've done my homework and I'm going to show you my work and I'm going to cite my sources, but you do have to take my word for it because that work's not as visible. That's the reality and the danger. And I think it's a pretty serious one. Okay. So... That's the, that's the check and balance on power that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, really, really smart people going way farther back than me. I mean, you go to the 1700s and you have the Edmund Burks of the world who write yeah. that the press serves as a fourth estate. Right. What he meant yeah. by that is right. they're almost a branch of the government. You have your judicial, executive, legislative, and then the, the media, press, right? right? The press. Right. And the reason for that was those other three could probably get away with a lot if they you didn't have a watchdog. You need that fourth as the right. watchdog. But if the watchdog doesn't have the trust, right, then they're going to get away with it. What's, what purpose do I serve at this point? And so what's the conclusion here? <laughs> this is the depressing part. <laughs> That's the depressing part. I yeah. don't have the right answer. I don't know that, that there is a right answer other than to keep fighting the good fight. And here's where you intersect with my faith a little bit. I find myself repeating, and I know I'm paraphrasing, but I find myself repeating a Bible verse to myself kind of a lot. And it's the one that's about not growing weary and doing good. Mm. I just have to remind myself, don't get weary. Don't get weary. And, and like Paul, if I think of it as being a race, I'm just putting one foot in front of the other, but I need to make sure that I'm doing it in a way that is the right way. So I'm not just, you know, well, here's another story, but I'm making sure that I'm telling every story the right way, fully cited with trustworthiness behind every word that I put out of my mouth or out of my pen. Right. 
then I'm finishing the race. And eventually I'm going to get there. But it's work. Yeah. Yeah, it's just going around the mountain. And so the thing that picks you back up is scripture. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's huge for me personally. I can't speak for everybody else, but that that really does keep me going yeah. to know that mm-hmm. I I value the First Amendment. I value my faith. And those two things kind of intersect in this place where I try my best every single day. And I try not to get tired doing my best. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Galatians 6, 9. It's so easy to become, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm done. It's exhausting. I mean, like you, you referenced earlier just about just every, the shortage in every labor market. Yeah. Right? I, I think everyone was tired before coronavirus started, and then it happened, and they're just, oh my gosh, the compoundedness yeah. of the weariness was it probably mental, but we're all going physical. And then the physical happened and now it's mental and physical. And it's just so easy to become weary. Yeah. And when you're having the same Facebook fight with somebody over and over again, even behind the the mantle of your, your broadcast outlet. Mm. Yeah. But you do. I think to your point yeah. is you just keep telling the truth. Right. You, keep t- you keep sharing the story. I, I can't afford not to. You mentioned before we started taping that you lived in Virginia during the time that the Virginia Tech shooting kind of happened. Yeah. So April 16th, 2007, I was Mm -hmm. actually the news director of a small news talk station, maybe 35 to 40 minutes outside of Blacksburg. So if you can think of Blacksburg as being kind of a bedroom community to Roanoke, Virginia, and Roanoke being kind of the capital of the backwoods. It's where West Virginia comes to go shopping. <laughs> no, really. Um, it kind of is. You can say that. We <laughs> yeah, it's a gorgeous place and I miss it. Oh man, I miss the people so much. Sometimes I had a wonderful church family there too, which is a whole other story. And I think that that helped carry me through living through that shared experience with them. Yeah. So longest day I've ever been on the air in my life. And I was working on 2000, uh, September 11th, 2001 too, but I don't live in New York. So this was a small scale 9-11 happening in my backyard. And while I didn't know anybody directly affected, I, I know of at least one person I went to church with who lost a student, right? So Roanoke is a, is a small community. It's very close knit. And Virginia Tech is the biggest employer in the area. Everybody knew somebody who was affected in some way. I had to send a reporter there. They were there all day. I've got a horror story about Nancy Grace that goes along with that. The media sort of converged on my community overnight. And so I got to experience kind of this horrible thing, both as a human being and a member of that community, and also as a member of the media. And I developed I developed a sense of things, best practices, if you will, after the fact, for how we can cover traumatic events and not cause more trauma, that we have kind of an obligation even to make sure that we're minimizing the harm when we do the reporting. So we're going to have to tell the story. I think there's there's important work to be done shining the light on horrible events. I think there's important work to be done on shining a light on government practices. I think we can learn something from horrible events and help prevent them from happening in the future. But there are some things that the media does that don't serve that purpose. In the case of Virginia Tech in particular, I came away strongly, strongly convicted that we put way too much emphasis as a society, or at least we did, on the shooter. In that particular case, and I'm not going to say his name, he had mailed 
video and photo of himself to some major news networks, and they aired it that night. And as a member of that community, I saw that guy's face, and those images are burned into my head, and I wish I could get rid of them. I think NBC and other outlets made the wrong call that day. Air what he sent. Yeah, that's asking what he him wanted. to become a celebrity. That's what he wanted. And I don't think that did anything but serve his purpose. Are there other things we can learn that are important to report on? Yeah, I think absolutely finding out in hindsight that there had been concerns about this person's mental health and that he'd been reported before and all that other stuff. It's all part of a picture that you need to know, right, as a society to do better and to move on. But I I think how you do that is super important. Similarly, I, I have a strong distrust for certain words around shootings. And you'll notice I didn't say mass shootings. There's, there's some wibbly-wobbliness around the definition of the word mass in front of shooting. How many people does it have to be? Make it, yeah. to, right, I see. Like, I see. And it's not a contest. I had, on the day of the Texas shooting a couple of weeks ago, somebody in my building asked me if that was the worst school shooting in Texas history. And I found myself saying, it's not a contest. Does it matter right now? Mm-hmm. Not one is better than the other. No. Or worse. No, this is horrible. Let's just, let's tell this story. We're going to have to tell this story, but we can tell it respectfully. And we can avoid the use of any kind of superlative language that's going to make it more sensationalized than it has Mm. to be. We don't need to make it something that rewards the behavior of the people who seek to carry that kind of act out. Well put. The emotion that must be unavoidable in these types of, and I'll use your word, horrible instances from what you experienced at Virginia Tech to so many of the stories that you cover. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's court documents I wish I could unread. That's real. A couple of things. I mean, how does that play into this idea of don't grow weary? It just seems this, you have to be sort of on this constant. God has put you in this position to be on this ability to say, here's what I need to do to keep myself from not growing weary. Yeah. It's hard to manage it. Yeah. I've always been really good at not taking work home with me. And by not taking work home with me, what I mean is news. My husband might sit on the couch and watch the six o'clock news. I'm going to be playing with the dog or something. (laughs) That's fine. I already know what's going on. I don't need to watch it. (laughs) I know what's on tonight. (laughs) Right. But then there are times when you just can't turn it off. Yeah. Learning to cope is a thing. And it's not a line of work that's for everybody. I don't think it's as hard as it would be to be a nurse or a doctor or a cop or a EMT or a firefighter. But I do think that if you don't have that ability to separate work from home, this is not the line of work for you. Similarly, as a station after the Virginia Tech shootings, we made a point of ensuring that we had a newsroom of four whole people, I know. But we made a point of making sure that everybody got just a day off. We want you to clock out. We want you to not be working. We want you to not be thinking about Virginia Tech if you can help it. And we want you to go do something good for yourself. And I, that was kind of an impulse decision on the part of me and our station manager at the time. But in hindsight, I've come to realize that that was, I don't know, a God whisper or what, but mm. somebody telling me that that was what we all needed, right? And so I've been sensitive ever since then. This was not a concept at the time of taking a mental health day. But I've been ever since then that periodically journalists need mental health days. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with using a sick day for that. How has being a Christian, is that something that you, you don't, do you share that with your, in your media environment? Is that kind of assumed that that would give you 
such a bias politically one way, the other, how does that play into your everyday life? Or do you just carry that inside with you? It's mostly inside me. I mean, rarely will it come up when I'm out doing a story because the story is never about me. It's about who I'm talking to. Mm. Oddly, because we live in Utah and it is predominantly LDS yeah. here, mm-hmm. most people assume if they don't know that you're Mormon and I'm not, right? So I find that most people just assume that I have that bias until mm. they find out otherwise. I usually don't bother to correct them because, I mean, realistically, it's it's a similar bias to what I would have as a Christian anyway. But yeah, I mean, for the most part... It might affect how I might ask questions. I think I'm more sensitive to how I might talk to somebody who's grieving, for example, than I would be if I weren't a Christian. But it, truth is truth. I know Jesus said, what is truth? <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think what, what makes me strong in my faith also makes me strong in, in my journalism. And that's that I stand for truth. So what advice maybe would you give those that are listening, that are struggling with this, and maybe they're listening to and interested in this topic because they're really frustrated with so-and-so that they think Mm. is so biased by fake, quote-unquote, fake news. I'm just going to say that as a term. Do you think it's helpful to define that term, or can we just put it out there? You probably do need to define it. I found that I needed to define it. I thought, going into this research, that fake news was information that is not true. I found out that for a significant chunk of my audience, fake news is me. Mm. It actually means the media to some people, right? And then there are some other definitions on the spectrum. So for the purposes of that conversation right now, are we talking about people who don't members of the media, people who don't reporters, or are we talking about bad information? Actual disinformation. This, this is, is so yeah, hard. This is the, mean, I've been sitting here silently. Just how do we... How do we navigate this? So for better or worse, the environment that we're in is is such that millions of us have one viewpoint in our head that is our truth, no quotes. And then there are millions of others that believe the exact opposite. And it's with the same with, amount with, of, with the same amount of conviction. Yeah. And there are Christians in both camps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do we make of that? How do we navigate Christian community? How do we how do we hold each other accountable? How do we continue even to have con- healthy relationships? Right. right. And and yeah, where do we take this from here? That's what I've been sitting here wondering. <laughs> there's there's eventually going to be another presidential election that comes up that starts to fuel it yeah. even more again. Well, and we're not even past the last one to a lot I, of people's I, mind. You know what I mean? Like we're mm-hmm. just, we're there. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in it. And that's a helpful definition <laughs> about fake news though. But I think Eric's articulating kind of the, the heart of the challenge. What makes my research even more tricky, and we sort of hinted at this earlier, but I don't think we talked about it. I started this project long before the Capitol riots on January 6th of 2021, right? But I was conducting all of the interviews with people that I had identified to talk to after that happened. And that sort of changed the tone of the research, but it was too late in my program for me to go back and redo all of the research for it. So I had to put a huge disclaimer in my thesis that was, by the way, this happened right in the middle of this project. And and that might have even different implications than what I found in my limited research. A lot of the people that I talked to, and I wound up interviewing at length 12 to 15 over Zoom because pandemic, 
all over this political spectrum, young, old, in between, some married, some not, one divorced, one was a grandparent, most had kids, a couple didn't, all over the map. And I learned so much about what we think we know about social media versus what we actually know. So, for example, most of the people that I identified to interview as part of that project had commented on a news organization's Facebook page. They did not see themselves as having interacted with a news organization. They saw themselves as having interacted with a friend because the algorithm serves stuff up to you based on other people, right? So somebody in Missouri sees a comment from their friend in California and they reply to that comment. They're not thinking about on this particular Facebook page. So I went out, confirmation bias, thinking I was talking to people who were active. Engaged with the news. with news media. And they weren't, Mm. right? So I had to completely rethink, okay, how do people interact with news organizations and who do they think they're talking to when they do interact? That was a huge eye-opening moment. In light of the January 6th thing, I identified people on both sides of that situation. People who were, it was just a a protest that got out of control. People who were, this was an absolute attack on our government. And none of them thought that they were talking to me as a journalist. They thought that they were talking to a friend. So social media is a whole wild west thing that we've probably just begun to scratch the surface on. But we do need to be thinking about whether there's an obligation on the part of, is it journalists? Is it Facebook? Is it it Twitter? Right? Like, who has the obligation to police that space and make sure that it's not being used for evil? I don't really mean evil. I mean, it can be used to spread misinformation. It can be used to spread good information. But right now, there's really not anybody serving as sheriff. To Mm. decide what's misinformation and what's good. But back to Eric's question. And how do you trust that person? Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. How do you, how do you, right. Whoever you can earn the trust, <laughs> they can earn the trust of the earnable right. of those that can see it as earnable. Back to your question about how do we do this? Yeah, we ask to answer your question: Is it Facebook's responsibility? Is it the is it the news organization's responsibility? And it's I'm feeling this conviction. Our well, it's, it's our responsibility, responsibility yeah. to not We're feed that fire through. as as badly as I might want to on any sort of issue. It is not going to be any help at all to add fuel to some fire with my own hurtful language or my own harmful words. And what I learned is that most people not only didn't see themselves as having interacted with a news organization, they really didn't see themselves as getting involved in that back and forth Facebook fighting stuff either. There are apparently a lot more people who are sitting back watching it going, what? I want nothing to do with this. Who are just not saying anything because it's so ugly and so vitriolic that they're like, I can't dip my toe in that water. It's gross. And are we underserving that part of the audience by not giving them a space to voice their views? It's so complicated. It's it's so complicated, but it affects it, and it will. I feel it will just can affect so much more how we more and more and more and more, right? Because we just everybody gets sort of just keeps digging dirt in their own camp, so they get kind of deeper, you know, into their kind of into their kind of hole. And social media doesn't help because it's just going to feed you via the algorithm of what you're, what you're researching. Yeah. And for perspective, my day job at the time, I was moderating a Facebook page, right? So on January 6, 2021, instead of thinking about how that was my birthday as a Christian, I was thinking about, oh my gosh, this is going down in front of me. But I was also 
in real time trying to moderate comments on Facebook and trying to fact check stuff when I had no idea what was going on mm-hmm. and the scale and the whole mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Now, my job is a little bit different as a news director. I'm not as directly involved in that day-to-day comment moderation stuff, mm-hmm. which is uh, frankly yeah. a huge relief. I um, imagine so. That must be extremely frustrating. It it truly it's it's hard work. It's hard work. And making sure you strike the right tone when you do send a fact check because you don't want it to come across Sending, you're wrong and I'm yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, you want to come across as being helpful and yeah. Anyway, whole other ball of wax. So now my job is less directly involved in that, but comes time for these hearings that are going on right now with the January 6th Select Committee and we have to decide, are we going to air this? Well, here's an ethical conversation I didn't know I was going to have in journalism school. We know ahead of time that there's going to be bad language in some of these videos that Congress is going to play. The FCC tells us that we can't air bad words. Is the public interest in airing that content so great that it overrules any slap on the wrist I might get from the FCC later for having let them slide some horrible word past the radar? I can't bleep it. It's happening in real time. There's no eight-second delay on this, right? That was a real conversation we had in my newsroom a couple of weeks ago. Wow, this is not a conversation I ever thought I'd be having. But I also found myself having an interesting conversation with somebody in the newsroom who pointed out that there's probably a full half of the audience out there that thinks that what happened that day really wasn't that bad. And another half that's all in. But to make sure that we're presenting the information in such a way to acknowledge kind of both points of view and and whatever. And I had to say to him, I was like, you weren't watching Facebook that day. You weren't seeing what I was seeing. Whatever your perspective is on it, it was a lot worse behind the scenes online than what you were seeing on your video screen. And I think we need to keep that in mind when we decide what information we present, because we need to make sure that while we're acknowledging that people have different points of view, the reality is the truth, wherever that is. And we're going to have to figure out what that is together. That's, that's, the that's word. a good together. Together is, yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. It's for better or worse, we're on different sides of XYZ camp mm-hmm. and the way forward is together. No, and so I agree with him. So you're keeping stuff this out of church because we're here to preach the word of God. We're here to talk about, we're here to worship. Right? We're here to worship and worship through the truth that we find in the Bible. But the, tr- the trend, it's just pushing more and more. Well, w- what's your stance on this? What's your stance on that? What's your stance on this? Whether that's political or hot topic or otherwise. And that seems to be just a reason people are saying they're not, they don't want to be a part of Christianity because Christianity isn't coming out again to reinforce their own implicit slash bias they want confirmation for. So here's That's the thing. a challenge. Yeah. Talking, talking real dirty, yeah. messy struggle truth. Right. I had a real epiphany when I, right after I first moved here. So to give you context, the man accused of convicted of kidnapping Elizabeth Smart for nine months was on trial and my station was covering it. And I spent most of that trial back in the station, not in the courtroom, but we would have regular check-ins with a reporter on the scene and I'd be anchoring and tossing to them and, okay, so tell me about what happened at court today and whatever. And the kidnapper had this real habit of coming in, singing hymns. He screamed. I remember he would just scream. And I don't pretend to understand what was going on in his mind. I don't want to try. 
there was a moment where he collapsed in the courtroom and they had to take him to the hospital. And I had this real kind of conscience crisis where I was, if I were a nurse, Mm -hmm. would I be able to take care of Brian David Mitchell? Or would I just not want to touch him? Right? And I was like, oh my gosh, I wouldn't want to touch him. What kind of horrible Christian am I? And I sat with that for a really long time. And none of us are perfect. So no judgment if you felt the same way about that. But in hindsight, it served me well covering all kinds of other stories. Because sometimes you have to interview people you don't like or that you wouldn't get along with on a regular basis. Maybe that's a politician who has a different point of view than you. I don't care what it is. Jesus loves whoever that is. And whether you're ready to right now or not, you have to keep that in mind. I'm still not ready to love Brian David Mitchell, and I think that's okay. But I know that Jesus does. And I think that goes for any politician, no matter where they come from or what they believe. And maybe that's just part of the ultimate hope. Yeah. Is that no matter who you are, no matter what you, that's what we say here. No matter who you are, no matter where you are on the the faith Mm. journey, no matter what you've done, no matter what you might do, you are loved by God, created in his image, and he will chase after you despite anything. Well, I think that's a hopeful place. Yeah, that is a I hopeful place. I think that's place. a hopeful place. I mean, I think part of what we hoped, for lack of a better word, as well, was to have some, I guess, little hooks to kind of hang on. Okay, how do I make sure what I'm reading is right? How do I make sure what I'm looking for on the news is right? How do I have my own little check and balance? in my own media consumption life. How do we improve our media literacy? Seek out multiple sources. I I could give you a whole masterclass on that, but that's the basic, barest, easiest thing you can do. If you see something and you've got questions about it, go seek out another source. Go seek out multiple sources. If they're all saying the same thing. And when you say multiple sources, not to be ignorant, do you mean make sure you watch Fox and CNN? That's a place to start. Um, they're, neither one of them are my go-to. What um, are some of your go-tos for news sources? Um, I find the Associated Press is usually pretty good at being right smack dab in the middle of things. I think NBC and ABC do a pretty good job of staying right smack in the middle of things. I also like to seek out sources from other countries because I, I find it's really instructive to be able to look and see, okay, is the BBC covering this the same way that the New York Times is? Or is, I don't know what Australia's top newspaper is, but are they kind of on the same page about this global issue or is their perspective completely different? And I notice where they're the same and where they're different. And that's kind of where I form my opinions about what's really going on. I think the more well-read you can be, the better. That's good. That is good. That's good. That's a good, clear and concise nugget, nugget, I think as well. Nothing is a black and white answer here. There's no Band-Aid. It's going to be a journalists have their work to do. The public has their work to do. And the the platforms have their work to do. But it's going to take all of that. It's not as simple as, okay, we're just going to do our part. That's important. I'm going to do my part. But those other pieces are important too. For some reasons, popping in my head a conversation around our dinner table not that long ago. My son was and daughter were having a conversation about what's an opinion versus a fact and had a school assignment. I think it was my daughter that had the school assignment. And she was having to identify what's an opinion and what's a fact. And, and, and that alone was fascinating to watch. Hmm. Him try to explain to her and her trying to 
process that and didn't necessarily always agree on the description of this particular item or object or topic, what's an opinion versus a fact? And it's an interesting metaphor, I think, for some of the things that we struggle with as, as well. There's, there's. Well, that was a key takeaway too that I learned was that media organizations, particularly cable news, do not do a great job of delineating their news products mm, from their talk mm-hmm. or opinion products. Yeah. Yes. And, yes. and there's a huge, How it looks. Yeah. So there were people who made comments to me about how much they liked this person or that person. And they would be talking about them as though they were a journalist. When I'm sitting here going, but they're not a journalist. Yeah. They're just a celebrity on a talk show. Right. Yeah. I think we've got, as, a, as an industry, we've got to do a much better job of delineating that content. That's a great point. But we point. also need to do a better job of teaching our kids to spot the difference. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. I'm even thinking about those funny images where one person sees yellow and gold. What color is the dress? But again, yeah. right? That's just another interesting kind of example of, no, 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 I'm looking at it with my actual eyeballs. Yeah. And I see gold and blue. And this other person sees gray sneakers and I see pink. Yeah. This is the kind of weird little world we live in where even the things we see with our own eyeballs might be the Truman Show. (laughs) Well, Uh, Becky, thank you for hashing through this with a a machete of the machete of truth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just this, yeah, it's been a good just conversation and it's, it's helpful to just sit in this sometimes. Yeah. There's no pretty bow. Pretty bow. We can tie on everything and, but there still is hope. And there still are ways forward and there still is things that I can do myself to try to make a positive impact. And so that, thank you for just being in that with us today. And thank you, God, for giving you that continual encouragement to not grow weary, to keep doing the good that eventually there is a harvest to reap. So we pray that God keeps giving you that energy and that strength to not grow weary and keep doing the good. Galatians 6, 9. Thanks. Thank you for listening and just for waiting in that conversation with us. I hope that it was relatable in a, in a good way. You know, I think we're navigating a bunch of tricky topics around politics and around the news, and it can be hard to know what to make of it sometimes. So I hope that this conversation, if anything, was relatable and that it can inspire some new, um, just some new prayers for inviting God to speak into your relationships, um, especially with someone who might not think about the news the same way that you do or get their news from somewhere else. A quick programming note, my wife, by the time you listen to this, is going to have had a baby. We're going to take the August 15th episode off and be back with you on September 1st. Thanks for being with us.